0: Today's podcast is sponsored by Mint Mobile. For the people who hate their phone bills and are ready to cut their ties with big wireless, Mint Mobile has got your new wireless plan and it's just $15 a month. To get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash gold. Well, earlier today, we got the Labor Department's release of the employment situation report For August. Now, there was some speculation that this report was going to come in a bit light of expectations. The consensus was 740,000 new jobs, and this would have followed 943,000 new jobs that were originally reported to have been created in July. But as we got more economic data during the week, most of it weaker than estimates, people started to ratchet down their expectations for this number. And so not as many people were expecting 740,000 jobs, you know, especially since we got a look at the ADP jobs number that came out on Wednesday and that was light. The expectation there was for 500,000 jobs after 330,000 jobs were gained the prior month, which was revised slightly down to 326,000. But the August number came in well below estimates at 374,000 jobs. Again, these are private sector jobs that are surveyed by ADP. And so that kind of set the tone. Although we have had some of these ADP numbers that were coming in low. And then despite that, we were getting strong government numbers case in point meaning last month when we had that big number from the government and in fact the july reading was actually upwardly revised by over a hundred thousand the government told us now that we created one million and fifty three thousand new jobs in july but the actual number that was released was actually well below those lowered expectations the number we got for August was 235,000 jobs. That's it. In fact, that was even below the lowest end of the expected range, which went from a low of 377,000 jobs up to a high of 900,000. So we gained an extra 100,000 jobs in July, but August came in 500,000 jobs below expectations. Now, you know, after the numbers came out, we had a press conference from Joe Biden. And Biden was basically talking about how strong this report was. He didn't mention the fact that it missed expectations. He concentrated on the total number of jobs. In fact, he actually had the nerve to brag about the fact that as president, More jobs have been created under his administration, given how many months he's been president, than any prior administration in U.S. history, which, of course, is true because more jobs were lost just before he became president than were lost at any period of time. In other words, he inherited an economy that had just been shut down by covid And so millions and millions of jobs were lost because of a deliberate and organized shutdown of the economy. And then Joe Biden walks in, and now the economy is reopened. And so those jobs that we temporarily shut down, well, now we're restoring those jobs. And now he's taking credit for this boom in job creation. Biden isn't creating any jobs These jobs were here before Biden was president. The people that have those jobs, that temporarily left those jobs before Biden took office, are now returning to those same jobs now that Biden is in office. So it's just the luck of the draw. He just happens to be president when those jobs are coming back. Yet he has the nerve to claim credit for actually creating those jobs, as if there's any creation going on. We are restoring the jobs that we already had. But the fact of the matter is, more jobs would have been restored, but for Biden. Biden's policies are actually keeping many people unemployed because Biden is increasing and extending the incentives to remain unemployed, not to return to work. So the reality is, more jobs would have been restored if Biden wasn't president. If Trump had been reelected, there's a better probability that more of these jobs that we lost would have been restored. But because Biden is president, his policies are interfering with the restoration of those lost jobs. Yet he's taking credit for the fact that in spite of his foolish policies, a large number of those temporarily lost jobs have been restored and he's now trying to claim credit that he's this great job creator. Complete nonsense. But of course, the left-leaning media will allow Biden to get away with this. But, you know, let me get back to the employment report and look at some of the other numbers that were released that Biden is bragging about and taking credit for. The unemployment rate did fall as expected from 5.4% to 5.2%, right? So that in theory should make the Fed happy because the Fed is saying they want to see full employment, but what won't make the Fed happy is the failure of the labor force participation rate to improve. It was at 61.7% last month, and the expectation was for an increase to 61.8% in August, Instead, the rate held steady at 61.7%. So a lot of workers still on the sidelines, of course, we know why, right? They have a financial incentive to stay on the sidelines and not to come into the game because why come into the game if you get paid more not to play and not to assume all the other risks associated with with going to work, some of them might be COVID or the Delta variant. So there's another reason why people would prefer to stay at home rather than go to work. But of course, there are a lot of other reasons for that preference. And when you pay people not to work, well, a lot of people take you up on that offer. So that number though is still low. And Powell is saying that before they raise rates, they want to see labor force participation come back up. They want more people in the workforce. That's why Powell says that this low unemployment rate doesn't really mean anything because we have a much smaller workforce. And so the people who are no longer part of the workforce, even though they're no longer employed, right, they're unemployed, they're not technically unemployed because they're not looking for work. And so they're not part of the 5.2% unemployment rate. But Powell knows that the potential is there for these people who left the labor market to want to return. And if they want to return and they can't find a job, well then the unemployment rate will go up. And so in theory, the Fed is gonna wanna keep the monetary spigots open until that labor force participation rate goes up and we still have a low unemployment level. But the numbers that really should concern the Fed, but of course the Fed's not gonna be concerned at all, are the numbers for the average hourly earnings, which went up much more than expected. The expectation was for a 0.3% rise, and that would have followed the 0.4% rise from July. Instead, we got a 0.6% rise. Now that actually ties the biggest increase that we've seen in average hourly earnings in a month since they began keeping track. And I forget, how long ago they started. It wasn't like 100 years ago. I think maybe this statistic, they've been keeping it for maybe 20 years or something like that. But however long they've been doing it, this ties the highest rate. And in fact, I think what I heard was the other month where we got 0.6% gain was the very first month that they tracked. So we haven't had a monthly rise this large since the very first monthly increase that was reported by this series. Now, of course, I think that we're going to break that record soon, probably before the end of the year with an increase that is higher than that. Now, of course, a lot of people are going to try to say, oh, this is a good thing. Wages are rising. But the reason they're rising is because of inflation. They're not rising because of increased productivity. In fact, we got productivity numbers yesterday And the numbers for Q2 productivity were actually well below estimates. They were looking for a 2.4% gain. We only got a 2.1% gain. Part of the problem, unit labor costs rising faster than expected. They were looking for a 1% rise. We got a 1.3% rise. So it's not productivity that is driving these wage gains. It is inflation. Now, part of it, of course, is that employers have to compete with welfare benefits or extended unemployment benefits or all these other incentives not to work. So employers are gonna have to spend more money convincing people to take jobs. But again, all that is inflation because the money that the government is using to pay people not to work is being created by the Fed. So it's inflation that is conjuring that money into existence. And now it's being given to people. And now employers have to compete with that in order to get people to work. So this is all being driven by inflation. In fact, look at the year-over-year gain in average hourly earnings. It's 4.3%. And that beats the upwardly revised 4.1% for July. In fact, it's well above the 3.9% year-over-year gain that analysts had expected. So they expected the 4% year-over-year rise from July to actually go down to 3.9. Instead, it went all the way up to 4.3. I mean, way below the upper end of any uh, high-side expectation. So this is a hot number on inflation. And based on recent history, right, a number like that would have sent gold plunging And the dollar rising because people were of the opinion that higher inflation meant higher rates it meant the fed was going to start fighting the inflation in a way that would be harmful to gold and helpful to the dollar that did not happen the dollar went down today and gold went up and i think the markets are starting to get it i mean they haven't gotten it completely but they're getting it in a little tiny way because we did not see that type of reaction now maybe the fact that the headline number was so weak that might have taken some of the sting out of the inflation number and that's true because the fed cares more about employment than it does about inflation in fact the fed stated over and over again and powell emphatically in his recent Jackson Hole speech, and I spoke about that extensively on this podcast, but Powell made it clear, the Fed doesn't believe these inflation numbers. It doesn't care about these inflation numbers. It's confident that inflation is transitory and they're sticking with that. I mean, they're going with that. It's transitory. It doesn't matter what else we see because we've already decided that's transitory. And if it's not, well, we'll cross that bridge. When we get to it, they somehow claim that if they make that mistake, well, that's an easy mistake to fix because they got the tools, right? But right now, what they're concerned about is employment and clearly the employment situation report for August should be troublesome because of the number coming in so much below expectations. And it's not just this number that we got. We got other numbers this week which were weaker than expected. And in fact, as a result, of all of these weaker numbers, we've had a lot of the Wall Street firms slashing their estimates for GDP in the third quarter. In fact, the Atlanta Fed GDP now, they were at 5.3%. Yesterday, they came down to 3.7% in their estimate. And look at Morgan Stanley, They were up at like six and a half or something like that. And they slashed all the way down to 2.9 for Q3. That is a big reduction in the expected rate of increase. And of course, the deflator that they are using to deflate the nominal GDP to get a real GDP completely understates the actual increase in the cost of living. I mean, if we got a 2.9% number for Q3... I bet in real terms, if they had a real inflation rate instead of a made up rate, that would be a contraction that the economy would be contracting in real terms, not expanding at all. And so this is obviously going to concern the Fed. And in fact, after we got this report, there were a lot of analysts that were now talking about the fact that maybe the Fed is now going to have to delay the taper. Look, the Fed never had any plans to unveil the taper. They weren't gonna start it. They were talking about potentially starting it, but they never actually laid out a plan to start tapering. So how do you delay a plan that you never even attempted to implement? But at least now the traders or investors are talking about the fact that the idea that the Fed was gonna announce some kind of taper, let alone begin it in the fall, the odds of that have now been diminished by the jobs numbers that we got today, by the downward revisions to GDP. But, you know, the inflation numbers, it's not just that these numbers are hot and hotter than expected and that the Fed has said that they don't care because the only thing the Fed said they care about is expectations. That is what Powell laid out in his Jackson Hole speech. He said that the mistake of the 1970s was that, the Fed did not realize that inflation that would have been transitory ended up not being transitory because the public ended up expecting inflation. And it was the public's fault because they didn't realize that the inflation was transitory. They weren't as smart as the Fed. And they started to just raise prices and demand pay increases because they were too foolish to realize that the inflation was transitory. And so these expectations got built into the economy and they gained traction. And that is what caused all the inflation of the 70s was the public's not understanding that it was transitory and overreacting and then expecting a bunch of inflation that we never would have had if they didn't expect it, which of course is all nonsense because Powell is not talking about the true causes of inflation, the excess money printing to fund the great society programs, war on poverty, Medicare, Medicaid, Vietnam, going to the moon, all that stuff. That's why we had all that inflation. It had nothing to do with the public's expectations. But one of the ways that you now can see that this is all a bunch of BS is we actually got some numbers on the public's expectation of inflation in the consumer confidence report that came out on Tuesday. And the confidence number was expected to drop somewhat. It was 125.1 in July. And the expectation was for decline to 123. Not that big a decline, kind of a modest slip in consumer confidence. Instead, confidence plunged all the way down to 113.8. Big plunge, why? Why are consumers so much less confident? Well, the reason is expectations for inflation. They are surging, I forget the exact number, it was a little north of 6% is the inflation rate that consumers are expecting. This is the highest inflation expectations have been since mid-2008, just before the 2008 financial crisis. Now, if the Fed was being honest or if Powell was being honest, if he really was keeping an eye out on expectations as a sign that maybe this transitory inflation may have traction and may stick around, how can he ignore this and do nothing? I mean, clearly, if Powell is not reacting to the highest inflation expectations since 2008. Clearly, he doesn't care about inflation expectations either because he seemed to imply that that's the only thing that might cause the Fed to be concerned and might cause it to alter its policy and maybe tighten sooner rather than later would be if expectations got too high. Well, they've already gotten high. They're the highest they've been since 2008.
1: Traffic jams
0: And here's an important fact. What happened in 2008? Why did consumers not get all the inflation that they expected? Well, because something happened that they didn't expect and that was the financial crisis. So we had the 08 financial crisis, we had collapsing real estate prices, we entered into the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression and we had a huge rally In the dollar and so all of those things work together to diffuse that inflation time bomb so the reason we didn't get all that inflation is because we had all these other factors that intervened and prevented it from happening right if real estate prices crashed well now consumers didn't have uh, their ATMs anymore to buy stuff if the economy collapsed and a lot of people lost their jobs they didn't have money to buy stuff and the dollar went up. That kept a lid on consumer prices and energy prices collapsed because of the financial crisis, because of the big rally in the dollar. Oil went from $140 a barrel all the way down to like 35 I mean, when you have that kind of collapse in the price of oil, that does a lot to bring down the official inflation rate. Obviously, consumers did not expect that to happen back in summer of 2008. They were optimistic on the economy, but what they were doing is seeing the price increases that they had been experiencing over the past six months, 12 months, and just assumed that those increases were going to continue. Now, the question is, today, consumers are now just as worried about inflation as they were in 2008. But of course, prices are still lower. I mean, oil isn't even close to where it was in 2008, but obviously other prices are going up to such a degree that consumers are as worried now as they were then. Except is there something on the horizon, something lurking out there that's going to defuse the bomb again? Or are consumers gonna be right this time? And are there inflation fears going to be validated? Will these expectations be met? In fact, not only will they not be met, they will be exceeded. So in other words, I think the consumer is going to end up being wrong again when it comes to expectations. In 2008, they expected more inflation than we got. Well, now in 2021, they're expecting less inflation than we're going to get because I think it's going to be even higher than what people expect and obviously much higher than what the Fed claims to expect because is there another financial crisis writing around the corner? Are we going to see a collapse in commodity prices like we did in 2008? No, I think commodity prices are just beginning their bull markets. In 2008, they were ending bull markets. Are we going to get a big rally in the US dollar? No, the dollar was making a major bottom in 2008. It was the end of a dollar bear market and the beginning of a dollar bull market. I think it's the reverse right now. The dollar has just ended that big bull market and we're now beginning a bear market. So we're starting a bear market in the dollar. We're starting a bull market in commodities. The Fed is printing money like crazy. There is nothing there that is going to derail this inflation juggernaut. I mean, only if the Fed decides to aggressively fight inflation with significant rate hikes and significant quantitative tightening, but there's no chance they're going to do that. In fact, they're going to do the reverse of that. Not only is the Fed not likely to taper, they are far more likely to actually expand QE, to start buying more bonds on a monthly basis than they're buying right now. And that's true even if they begin the taper, because if they begin it, it'll just be wind addressing. It'll be temporary because the Fed will quickly reverse policy because if talking about tapering can be so harmful to markets, imagine how much more harmful actually tapering could be. So the minute they start to taper, they will quickly worsen the conditions and then that will force them to do the about face and go to an even bigger QE program. But again, it's my feeling that they're not even going to go there. That before they even get around to the first taper, they're going to be ratcheting it up because I think these economic numbers are going to keep getting weaker. I think consumer expectations are going to be exceeded. Inflation is going to get higher and higher. And if consumer confidence is now dropping because inflation is picking up, if inflation continues to pick up, and it will because the Fed's going to ignore it and they're going to keep on creating it, well, then confidence is going to keep on slipping and the whole economy is going to be rolling over into recession unless the Fed steps up with the money printing, which it is going to do, especially if you factor in all of the additional spending that is in the pipeline from the Obama administration. I know right now, from the Biden administration. I mean, right now, Congress is trying to figure out how to pay for a small fraction of all the spending. And they're coming up with all sorts of cockamamie ideas on how to tax the rich. Although, you know, now they're also trying to build in tax cuts for the middle class. So not only do they want to increase spending, they want to cut taxes for the middle class while they're raising taxes on the super rich. So I don't even know that they'll be able to raise taxes enough on the rich to cover the tax cuts for everybody else, let alone all the additional spending. So all of this is going to have to come from the Fed. Well, if the Fed is going to monetize deficits that are much higher than the deficits it's monetizing now, there's no way it can taper QE in the face of that, it will be forced to dramatically scale up the size of its assets purchases to accommodate much larger deficits. And that may be especially true if Powell is not even renominated to chair the Fed because there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. I mean, look at the pressure you're getting from the left. AOC is demanding that Biden appoint a Fed chairman who will work harder to advance racial and economic justice and to help eliminate climate risk. That is what AOC wants the chairman of the Federal Reserve to do. How exactly do you do that by printing money? What does printing money have to do with advancing justice, economic justice, racial justice? How do you do that? How does printing money eliminate climate risk? It doesn't. But what AOC wants is for the Federal Reserve to print the money so that Congress can spend the money in ways that AOC believes will lead to racial and economic justice and end climate change. In other words, she wants the Fed to fund Green New Deal programs and redistribution of wealth, maybe some type of reparations, whatever it is, that's what she wants. So when she talks about a Fed chairman who will advance racial and economic justice, she means a Fed chairman who will monetize all the added deficits that are created when Congress starts implementing these spending programs to address what she believes is a racial or economic injustice, meaning there are groups of people that don't have enough money. They don't have enough wealth. They don't have enough income. And so the way the government is going to resolve that disparity, that gap, between the rich and the poor is to make the poor less poor by giving them money. Well, where's the money going to come from? Well, it's going to come from the Fed. And so if we get AOC's wish and we get a Fed chairman that's an even bigger dove than powell who will print even more money to monetize even bigger deficits then all bets are off although i've heard nothing from powell to indicate that he wouldn't cooperate as well i mean even though he does talk about the fact well we'll never let inflation get out of control he's got to say that he can't admit that they will let it get out of control but it's so obvious that he doesn't care because he's looking at these numbers wage gains consumer price gains surging expectations of future inflation all the while claiming that there's nothing to worry about, everything is transitory. The irony, of course, of what AOC wants, right? She wants a Fed that will print more money, that will keep interest rates low. That is precisely the reason that the wealth gap is so large. It's because the Fed is making the rich richer through policies that favor assets and making the poor poorer by destroying the value of their savings and their wages but also by making the economy less productive because money that would otherwise be invested productively in plant and equipment that would improve labor productivity instead goes to fund speculative excesses on Wall Street that doesn't really improve productivity. Instead, we just get bigger trade deficits that are made possible by the dollars reserve status. And so it's the very inflationary monetary policies that, that AOC wants the Fed to expand in an effort to fight income inequality, that's the very reason that incomes are so unequal. It's the Fed that is undermining the economy with the very policies that AOC wants the Fed to expand. And of course, AOC is not the only person that doesn't understand this. I mean, I I joke about AOC and I call her the bartender, right? Because that's what she did before she went to Congress. But a lot of people who supposedly have a lot more experience and a lot more education than AOC believe this nonsense too. In fact, I was reading an article in the New York Times just on this topic because they wanted to address the idea that the Fed is enabling or causing income inequality with artificially low interest rates, right? Therefore, the Fed was a driving force in the widening wealth gap because it was the Fed that was responsible for these really low interest rates. Well, the New York Times tried to shift the blame from the Fed and said, no, it's not the Fed. The Fed is not causing low interest rates. The New York Times blamed low interest rates on a savings glut. According to the New York Times, there's just so much savings out there that interest rates are at rock bottom because everybody is saving and there's not enough people borrowing money. So we have a shortage of borrowing. We have this glut of savings. And because we have this enormous amount of savings, all the savers are competing for this tiny number of loans and therefore interest rates are at rock bottom. I mean, what a bunch of nonsense. I mean, Certainly, when it comes to the United States, there's no savings glut. I mean, nobody is overloaded with savings. We're all to our eyeballs in debt, right? We have the opposite of a savings glut. We've got a dearth of savings. We've got a glut of debt consumer debt, business debt, government debt, right? We have a ton of debt. But even if you look at the savings outside the United States, it's still not nearly enough to be responsible for interest rates being this low. I mean, it's clear that it's central banks. I mean, if they want to kind of shift some of the blame from the Fed to the ECB or the Bank of Japan, okay, they're cooperating in this. Obviously, if those central banks didn't have their interest rates at rock bottom levels, if they had higher rates, there would be a lot more pressure on the Fed to raise rates. Otherwise, the dollar would implode and inflation would explode. But it is government, it is central banks that are artificially manipulating interest rates. The idea that we have a savings glut is a myth. In fact, one of the reasons that we don't have any savings is because interest rates are so low. What kind of fool is going to save money when rates are this low? And in fact, with their monetary policy, the Fed has inflated asset bubbles all over the place that is enticing people who might otherwise save to gamble instead because they're so confident they're going to win. And the Fed has created all this momentum in all these risk assets. So you either can save your money and get no interest and have inflation or ar- it away, or you can just throw it at a meme stock, or you can buy a cryptocurrency and get rich. So the Fed is causing a lack of savings by keeping interest rates low. And by keeping interest rates low, the Fed is artificially pushing up financial assets. And that's what's making the rich richer. In the meantime, resources are being pulled away from Main Street and misdirected to Wall Street, undermining the economic growth of the economy that would have made the poor and middle-class better off and would have disproportionately improved their lives relative to the lives of the rich. Are you tired of getting ripped off by the big wireless providers of being promised deals that seem too good to be true until you find out they're not? Because there's always something lurking in the fine print. There's always a catch. So when I first heard about Mint Mobile and that they offered premium wireless service for just $15 a month, my first thought was, what's the catch? But you know, after doing a deep dive, it all makes sense. There is none. Mint Mobile secret sauce is that they're the first company to sell wireless services online only. No retail stores. So they don't have all the overhead associated with a retailer and they pass on the savings to you in the form of lower prices. All the plans come with unlimited talk and text High-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and you can keep the same phone number you have now along with all your existing contacts. And if you're not 100% satisfied, Mint Mobile's got you covered with their 7-day money-back guarantee. So switch to Mint Mobile now to get premium wireless service starting as low as 15 bucks a month. That's right. $15 a month. In fact, we're getting a phone for our eight-year-old son, Preston, and we chose Mint Mobile as it's half the cost of adding another line to our existing plan. And to get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and to get the plan shipped right to your front door, all you got to do is go to mintmobile.com slash gold. That's mintmobile.com slash gold. So take some of the sting out of inflation by cutting your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gold. One other thing too that's been happening that I think also pushes taper to the back burner as if it was ever on the stove to begin with, look at all the natural disasters that have been happening. Of course they happen all the time, but as a result of these natural disasters, there's going to be more government spending. I mean, first of all, we got the horrific fires up in Lake Tahoe in California doing incredible damage over there. Then we just had the hurricane. Fortunately, the the levees held. And so the damage wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been had those levees not worked. Remember, that was why Katrina did so much damage. Ida, Category 4 hurricane, could have been very bad had those levees not held. But still, a lot of damage where the hurricane made landfall, a lot of windblown damage, very destructive storm, but not only for uh, Louisiana, but the Northeast as a result of this hurricane passing, we had massive flooding all over the Northeast. Look at what's going on in New York, New Jersey, all the way up, I think through Maine, terrible floods from the storms. Again, a lot of damage, a lot of it covered by insurance, a lot of it not covered by insurance. I'm sure a lot of government bailout money is going to come. And we're still early in the hurricane season. So who knows how many more hurricanes are likely to hit. And the other problem here is this is putting even more upward pressure on prices because whatever homes are destroyed by fires or hurricane or flood, they need to be rebuilt. We already don't have enough homes. This puts even more upward pressure on the homes that are still standing, but now it's going to be even more expensive to build homes because now more homes need to be built. And so more material is needed to build those homes. And we're about to pass this huge infrastructure program, which again is going to be drawing on the same limited supply of raw materials and labor as uh, rebuilding these homes. So again, all of this just makes inflation higher, pushes prices up, more money printing, more problems that everybody seems to be ignoring. But in addition to ignoring all these problems, it's still apparent to me that the markets still don't understand them. Because if the markets really understood what was going on, we would have had a much bigger rise in the price of gold today Than the $20 rise that we got. I mean, gold was up. Gold closed just below 1830. I think 1828, 1829. We were above. I think we got almost to 1835 at one point during the day. Silver had an even stronger day. It was up about 80 cents, almost at 2470. But still, if investors really appreciated the reality of the situation with respect to inflation and Fed policy, The price of gold would be significantly higher and it would have moved significantly higher today. Although this is the highest the price of gold has been since mid-June. And I think the chart looks very good. And I think we're getting very close to a major gold rally. I think gold held up extremely well during this so-called tightening cycle where everybody was expecting the Fed to taper. Everybody was expecting the Fed to hike rates. And all of that tapering, all of those rate hikes were already factored in, discounted into the price of gold. And we barely got below 1800 To me, that shows a lot of strength. You know, a lot of people are writing gold off. They think the fact that it's not rallying now proves that it's ineffective and no longer an inflation hedge. I think the fact that it hasn't sold off, just like so many people expected. The expectation was for a big gold decline. Those expectations never materialized. Gold didn't go down at all, right? The Fed threw everything it had in theory at the gold market and there it is. You know, it didn't go anywhere. The market basically called the Fed's bluff that we're not going to get all this tightening. And even if we get it, it's too little too late, but the markets still haven't figured out that they got it wrong. In fact, look at the gold stocks. For the gold stocks to get back to where they were Back in mid-June, when the price of gold was exactly the same as it is now, gold stocks have to rise 20%. In other words, we need an entire bull market in gold stocks just to have them return to the price that they were at two and a half months ago. Why is that? Well, because these gold stocks factored in this big gold decline that hasn't happened. And the gold stock investors still aren't pricing that decline out of these stocks the stocks are still priced for a big gold drop, even though it hasn't dropped at all. And in fact, looking at a chart, it looks like the price is going to go way up. In fact, I think it's the same story with silver. Silver would have to rally about 15% from here to get back to where it was two and a half months ago when gold was exactly the same price it is now. Now, why was silver so much weaker than gold? Well, I think it's, The fact that the market itself is thinner as far as liquidity and traders, if you expect a drop in the price of gold, well, you expect an even bigger drop in the price of silver because that's generally how it works. So traders got in front of that before it even happened. So since they thought the price of gold was going to go down, they went and sold silver. Well, the price of silver went down, but the price of gold did not because there's so much demand for gold as a monetary metal, as a hedge against inflation from people who actually understand what's going on, that the price of gold didn't even go down. And so again, silver priced in a gold decline that never happened. And so once gold really starts to move up, not only does silver have to go up with gold, it has to go up a lot more to recover the ground that it never should have lost because it only lost it because investors expected gold to go down and gold never went down. So an even bigger rally in silver is coming because it has to make up for all that lost ground. And one of the things that makes me even more convinced that raises my level of conviction that this spectacular rally is eminent is I was listening to this conversation on CNBC this morning. And this is before the jobs numbers came out. So gold was up maybe four or five bucks early in the morning. No big deal. But several of these anchors were talking about gold. And they all seem to agree that gold has lost its luster that gold has proven over these past 10 years, right, because it got to 1900 in 2011, and here it is 10 years later, and it's barely above 1800. This supposedly means that gold is dead, right? Because we've had this big pullback from an all-time record high, because we've had a bear market, now gold is dead. It's not an inflation hedge. And one of the reasons that they claim that gold is dead is because crypto killed it. It's like, hey, why do you need gold as an inflation hedge when you got Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies or NFTs? They're actually talking about NFTs as a way to hedge against inflation. Or hey, just buy some tech stocks, just buy some momentum growth stocks, just buy meme stocks, just buy high PE companies or just buy companies with no E. Buy brand new startups that have never made a dime. And say that's an inflation hedge. So apparently there's all these other things that people can use to hedge inflation and they're not using gold. No, that's not true. They're not using these things to hedge inflation. They're buying these other assets predominantly because they couldn't care less about inflation. They're not even worried about inflation. They're just trying to get rich in these speculative assets. They're not inflation hedges. It's when people really begin to fear inflation when they realize that the Fed is all talk and there's no action behind their words, right? They have no stick. They're just speaking loudly. When they figure this out, they are going to want an inflation hedge and they will buy gold and they will buy silver. And these prices are going to go way up. But the fact that these regulars, these the hosts on CNBC are so convinced that gold is dead, that gold has proven that it's no longer a hedge, that is exactly what you would expect to hear from CNBC just before a major gold rally because you know they're going to get this wrong they're going to get fooled by every bubble they're going to buy into any head fake that the market is going to throw at you and that's exactly what this is and that show reflects the public opinion and the public opinion is generally wrong so if CNBC is telling you gold is finished that has been replaced by crypto, you know that gold is just getting started. And in fact, if you're holding on to crypto, that's yet another reason to sell. And I know as I'm doing this podcast, all the Bitcoin guys are feeling very excited because Bitcoin is back above 50,000. Although I think the Ethereum guys are even more excited because Ethereum rose above 4,000, although as I'm recording this, we're slightly below, we're 39 and change. And you know, all the people who try to argue that Bitcoin is better than gold, that it's a better store of value than gold because the price has gone up, right? That's what everybody says. Hey, Bitcoin has proven that it's a better store of value than gold because over the last 10 years or since Bitcoin was invented in, in 2011, Bitcoin's price has gone up a lot more than gold's price. Therefore, it's a better store of value. That argument is complete nonsense because price and value are two different things, right? You can't be a store of value unless you have value to store. Bitcoin doesn't have any value to store. Gold has value. It has the value of the metal. I could use my gold as a metal today or I can store it for somebody else to use as a metal in the future or to use personally in the future. But what you're storing is all of the metallic properties that gold is used for. But when you store Bitcoin, you're not storing anything that anybody can use. You know, I did this debate today on uh, Peter McCormack's uh, podcast, What Bitcoin Did, and the argument was made that you're storing electricity. You're storing energy when you buy Bitcoin. And it's just a laughable argument. Yes, it takes energy to create a Bitcoin. A lot of energy is wasted to solve the math problems that result in a Bitcoin, right? Which the Bitcoin community calls mining. So you you expend a lot of energy mining a Bitcoin. But at the end of the day, you've mined nothing. So you've wasted that energy. That energy can't be released. It's not like the energy used to solve that math problem is somehow... Preserved inside that digital token and that I can release the energy at some point in the future. When I tried to make that point, they said, well, you can use the Bitcoin to buy energy. Well, that doesn't mean you're storing the energy. You have to buy energy from somebody else who produced it. You're storing nothing when you're storing Bitcoin. But that's the kind of cockamamie things that the Bitcoin community comes up with. And if you don't look beneath the surface, oh, you know, it's backed by math and it's a storage of energy. It's a way to store energy. It's a way to waste energy. You don't store anything, but people don't dig down. They just accept this nonsense. But my point that I wanna make here is if they argue with me that, well, Bitcoin is better than gold because had you bought Bitcoin 10 years ago, the price has gone up more than gold and of course that's true with everything i mean the price of bitcoin's gone up more than stocks gone up more than real estate that doesn't mean it's better than real estate it's different you can't even compare bitcoin to real estate you can't compare bitcoin to stocks yes the price of bitcoin has gone up more than stocks but it's not comparable they're very different and the same is true with gold Gold and Bitcoin have absolutely nothing in common. So to say that, well, Bitcoin went up more than gold means nothing. It says nothing about gold. Gold is a conservative store of value. Bitcoin is a speculative digital token. They're as different as night and day. But if your argument rests on price, hey, well, the proof that Bitcoin is a better store of value than gold is the fact that it's gone up more. If that's what you're gonna say, well, then Ethereum is better than Bitcoin. Because if you look at the appreciation of Ethereum since it was invented, right? It came on the scene six years ago. So if you go back to the birth of Ether and you compare it to Bitcoin over that same six years, Ethereum has gone up way more than Bitcoin. So by the same argument that the Bitcoiners use to claim that Bitcoin is better than gold, you can use the identical argument to claim that Ether is better than Bitcoin. Now, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. If Ether is a better store of value than Bitcoin because it's gone up more than Bitcoin, then why does anybody have Bitcoin? Just sell all your Bitcoin and buy Ethereum because it's a better store of value. Now, if the Bitcoiners want to argue, well, it's not really a better store of value because it's just going up because of speculative buying and the people who are buying it don't get it, they don't understand, they should be buying Bitcoin, but they're not, they're buying Ether and they're wrong and the price of Ether is gonna come down i can turn that exact argument around and say it about bitcoin with respect to gold see the only reason that bitcoin has gone up more than gold is for the exact same reason the bitcoiners are going to say that ether has gone up more than bitcoin the people who are buying bitcoin who think they're getting a store of value should be buying gold instead they're making the same mistake that they're accusing people who are buying ether of. they're saying they're wrong, they don't see the value of Bitcoin, they shouldn't be buying Ether. Well, the people who are buying Bitcoin are wrong because they don't see the value of gold, and conversely, they don't see the absence of value in Bitcoin, just like the Bitcoiners don't think there's value in Ether. Now, of course, there are some people who think there's value in both, but there are these Bitcoin maximalists that think anything that's not Bitcoin is a shitcoin. coin, but they just don't realize that Bitcoin stinks too. Anyway, getting back to the markets, I said earlier that gold and silver were both up on the day. Silver had a much bigger percentage gain, but it has a long way to go because it has a lot of lost ground to make up for. But the dollar index was also weak, although not nearly as weak as it should have been, given how bad these numbers are. But we closed at 92.11. That's off from 92 spot 70, approximately. That's where we ended the prior week. Interestingly enough, Bonds were actually down today, yields were up, and the reason for that is if the Fed is less likely to taper, that means they're more likely to allow additional inflation, right? They're thinking, oh, if the Fed isn't gonna taper, the economy could be stronger, and so that is pushing up rates. The idea that the Fed might taper, which might weaken the economy, that was the reason that yields were falling and bond prices were rising, But if now we're pushing back the beginning of the taper, we're starting to see a movement up in bond prices. What I think will happen is if we get a much bigger move up in yields and move down in bond prices, that reason alone will cause the Fed to expand the QE program because the Fed will have to push rates down. But given what's happening with inflation expectations and actual inflation, I could see a point in time in the very near future where we really see a big backup in rates that dramatically increases the cost to the government of funding the existing national debt, let alone the prospective debt that's going to result from all this new spending. And there will be added pressure on the Fed to monetize that additional debt in order to keep rates from rising. And that's what would caused the Fed to tear up these taper plans if it ever drafted those plans to begin with. And looking at a chart of bond prices and yields, it looks to me like we're close to a breakout in yield and a breakdown in price. Now, of course, we've been at this trend line before and something always happens uh, to turn the market the other way, but we'll see. But it would be very interesting if bonds break down and gold breaks out at the same time. In fact, it would be a trifecta of problems if the dollar also broke down as bonds broke down and gold broke out and we could be very close to those three events happening meanwhile the stock market basically shrugged off the news it really wasn't a big event the S&P ended the day slightly down the Dow down just a little bit more but the Nasdaq even rose better than one percent not a new record high but nonetheless we had a gain In the face of this weaker than expected economic news the largest percentage decline was the russell 2000 but it only fell by about a half a percent so again not a big decline and that's probably because the markets are still not sure if bad news is good news or bad news is bad news because getting fewer jobs shows that the economy is not as strong but at the same time it helps to take the taper or rate hikes out of the picture. And so that's good for stocks, good for risk assets because there's more money printing. And of course there's more inflation, which people could hedge uh, by buying real assets. And so traders may not be exactly sure how to react to this data, but I still think that the markets are marching to the drum of cheap money. And that drum beat is going to get louder and louder, which is why I don't think the markets are gonna sell off. I think the markets are gonna rally, but I do believe that foreign markets will rally much more than U.S. markets because the valuations are much better and I think the smart money is going to be getting out of the U.S. getting out of the dollar looking for greener pastures and believe me the pastures are much greener overseas than they are here and so I think this weak economic news is bullish for the markets and it's going to be even more bullish for foreign markets than it is domestic. It's going to be very bullish for commodities, uh, very bullish for emerging markets. And that's where people should be investing. And I want to finish up the podcast just by mentioning, I did do this Q&A on Wednesday, which was done live on my Instagram account. And initially, I was going to do a Q&A on YouTube instead of a podcast, but then I ended up doing it on Instagram because I'm trying to reach out uh, to the Instagram audience a bit, trying to cultivate more followers on Instagram. So if you're not on Instagram, you should make a point of going there and following me. If you want to participate in anything I do in Instagram, if you want to do it live, I did post the Q&A on my YouTube channel. It's not on the podcast channel, The Shift Report. So if you listen to my podcast at Shift Radio or through iTunes or someplace else, you wouldn't have seen it. But if you routinely follow my YouTube channel, if you subscribe there, in fact, if you're not subscribing to my YouTube channel, you should go and subscribe. Because we did, after the fact, I uploaded that Q&A. It's about 90 minutes. I uploaded it to the YouTube channel. So I would encourage people to check it out. Look, you know, the quality isn't great because I had to film it from my cell phone. And and so the image isn't as nice. And the sound was not great because I was, you know, I was going to do it initially outside and it rained. And so because of the rain, I ended up doing it inside and I was at my house and I wanted to find a room that was kind of far away because my kids are here, there are people in the house. So I wanted to find a quiet room where I could sit down. And so I picked this room that wasn't really ideal because the sound was really echoing. I mean, it's not a disaster, uh, but it's not as good a sound as I as I would have liked. And part of the problem with that room is that it's still largely unfurnished. I mean, it's a room that, you know, I have a pool table there. It's kind of like my man cave-ish. You know, it's got a bar. I got a dartboard up there, a pool table. And I'm in the process of furnishing it, but everything is taking forever to furnish and the things that I'm waiting for. One story in particular that I want to include in the podcast, just to give you an example of what's going on I ordered a rug for that room, and a rug would have really helped to absorb some of the sound and the echo. But I ordered this rug before COVID, right? Before COVID, before March of 2020. And of course, COVID delayed it. They kept saying, you know, it's a delay. We can't get the rug or the workers aren't working. So I'm waiting. I paid, I put a 10% down payment on this rug. And I just found out like just within the last week or two that the company that I bought the rug from, and this company is in Connecticut. It's a company that I've done business with. I bought furniture from them when I was there. Lillian August is the name of the company. And so I had bought this rug from Lillian August and they were going to ship it to Puerto Rico when it was done. Just found out that Lillian August went bankrupt, right? They went bankrupt during COVID. And you would think, that, you know, with this new housing boom and everybody coming from the city, you know, buying houses in Connecticut, that a furniture store that's selling furniture in Fairfield County, Connecticut, that they would be doing good business because everybody needs furniture, especially if you're coming from a small apartment. Maybe you have a 2,500 square foot apartment and now you buy a seven-eight 8,000 square foot house. Well, you need a lot of furniture. You need a lot of rugs. So you'd think they'd be doing a booming business. Instead, the business evaporated. They went bankrupt. They liquidated all their inventory. Apparently I've lost my deposit, right? I'm just an unsecured creditor. So I ain't getting my money back. I got to go out and buy a new rug. I got to start from scratch. But apparently a lot of other people lost a lot of money that they had put up for furniture that they're never going to get. But, you know, this is another example of what's going on in the real economy. So many companies going bankrupt and the delays, how long everything is taking. I mean, I'm still doing a lot of stuff with this house And most of the stuff that I'm doing, it's taking years to accomplish very simple tasks. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that we can't get the parts, can't get the material, the shipments are delayed, and everything that I need to buy obviously costs a lot more than it would have cost had I bought it before COVID, just costs a lot more now. And I get inundated. With real life examples, people are sending me these stories all the time of their real world experiences with rising prices, with shortages. All this stuff is real. There is no indication that any of it is transitory. In fact, all the evidence suggests that we're just getting started, that these trends are going to accelerate, that the so-called shortages are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger, as will the price hikes, especially when a lot of these companies really start to pass on. The increases. In particular, there's a lot of these consumer staples, businesses that are selling food products. What are the reasons that their stock prices have been so weak? is because their earnings have missed because these companies have been reluctant to raise prices because they're worried about losing market share. Meanwhile, they're all losing profits because their costs are going up and they're not passing on the hikes. The main reason is because they're saying, well, this is temporary. We don't wanna risk losing customers by raising prices. So we're gonna keep them the same and we're just gonna eat these losses for a short period of time Well, when they realize that these higher costs are permanent and their competitors come to the same conclusion, these businesses aren't going to be afraid of raising prices. They're going to have to raise prices, all of them. And it's not going to cause consumers to shift from the companies that raise prices to the companies that don't because every company is going to have to raise prices to survive. And so a lot of these big price hikes are coming, which is one of the reasons that I think A lot of these stocks that have been hit hard by weak earnings due to rising costs, especially the ones that are outside the US are really good buys because investors are underestimating the ability of these companies to raise prices and their wherewithal to be able to raise prices, they will. The companies that are gonna have a hard time raising prices are the companies that are selling the stuff that you don't have to buy. If you're selling stuff that people need Well, if you raise prices, they're just going to have to pay more for the stuff they need. They're going to have to cut back on the stuff they don't need. And it's ironic that a lot of these stocks are the ones that aren't going down, right? People aren't concerned about these stocks. In fact, there's a lot of stocks that don't even have prices because they give away stuff for free. Right? So, what difference does it make? And of course, the companies that are losing money, if you're buying a money losing company, what difference does it make if their costs go up? They just lose more money, but you don't care because you're not buying the company for the profits. You're not buying it for the dividends. But if there's a stock that you're buying because you want to get a dividend and you're buying into a profitable business, and if the business is less profitable because costs go up, those stock prices are suffering. But the shares of the companies that don't make any money and no one even cares if they make money, those are the ones that are shrugging off the inflation. But ironically, those are the companies that are going to suffer the most damage and they're going to get the most pushback from customers when they do raise prices because they may be selling discretionary items. It's the companies that are selling these staples, non-discretionary items that you need that are going to have the best pricing power And ironically, those are the stocks that are suffering and those are the ones that should be bought. Anyway, that's it for this podcast. I just want to wish everybody a great holiday weekend. This is the start of the three-day Labor Day weekend. And hopefully everybody enjoys the extra day off. Have fun. Stay healthy. I'll be back again next week with more podcasts.